Bibles to Romans chapter 1 tonight. Romans chapter 1 in our text for tonight is verses 13 through 15. Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, man's value before God. Man's value before God. Verses 13 through 15. Now, because the study of the book of Romans is going to take some time, uh, probably even two years, maybe a little bit more than that on our Wednesday nights, periodically, I want to step back and give you the big picture to remind you of where we are in the book and, and where Paul is going in the book. Because in a long study like this, there's a temptation to get so caught up in the details of a particular passage that we forget where it is in the big picture. And when we do that, when, when we get so detailed that we forget the big picture, we lose some of the beauty of what Paul's doing. So tonight, I'd like to, to swing back and, first of all, read with me the first few verses or the first 15 verses of this chapter. Also, I want to challenge you to uh, periodically read through the book of Romans. If you would, say, take two chapters a night, if you could get it done in eight, eight uh, days, maybe perhaps I would think it would be a really, really good idea for you to do that once a month. And if you did read the entire book once a month, you would keep these big picture ideas uh, right in the front part of your mind. And then when we go over details, that you'll see where those details fit in the big picture, and they won't just get lost. So uh, that's what we've got to do. If we were studying it every night, it would be a little bit different. But when we're doing it once a week and when it's going to take at least two years to do, we've got to get these big picture ideas in mind. First, the, Paul starts out in, in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, or the obedience that equals faith, or you could translate it, the obedience which is faith, among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, for your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established or encouraged or built up. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want to, you, you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, thus for my part. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The first seven verses are Paul's salutation or his greeting. Verses 8 through 17 are the introduction, but actually 8 through 15 is the first part of the introduction. And in verses 16 and 17, which we'll begin a study of next week, uh, Paul's going to introduce the theme, which is uh, the righteousness of God has been revealed to mankind in verses 16 and 17. But let us remember 
a few things about the epistle in general, and then we'll move on to the study of these two verses, verses 14 and 15, actually 13, 14, and 15 tonight. Remember, and by the way, if you were here the first class, you heard some of this. Actually, you heard all of it. Some of it has been tweaked. It's changed up a little bit, but if you have notes, you might can just um, fill in some notes with this. If not, just listen. Just listen carefully and get the big picture. Paul wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for at least three reasons. First, he wanted to prepare the way for his intended visit to the church. He evidently hoped that Rome would become a base of operations for him and support his missionary work in Spain and in western portions of the empire that had not yet been evangelized. His advanced writing on soteriology in this letter would have provided a solid foundation for their participation in the mission. In other words, if he's going to use Rome as a base for evangelism, wouldn't it help if they knew something about the gospel? Wouldn't it help if they knew something about soteriology, which is the theological way of saying the study of salvation? Oftentimes, we get very zealous as believers in Jesus Christ, particularly new believers. We get very zealous and we want to make sure everybody has the same relationship with Christ that we do. And so, therefore, we rush forward. And oftentimes, the gospel that's presented is not really the gospel that is biblical. Now, if we were to wait on people who to become mature before anybody went out and witnessed, there wouldn't be a whole lot of witnessing done. So, uh, fortunately, the Holy Spirit sees fit to use even sometimes inaccurate gospel presentations for his glory. But we don't want to do this by accident. We'd like to do it by intent. And so that was Paul's point, too. He wanted them to know these doctrines of soteriology if they were going to be uh, used as a base for further missionary activities. As Paul looks forward to returning to Jerusalem, remember he's in Corinth when he writes this in, in 57 A.D. As Paul looked forward to returning to Jerusalem between his departure from Corinth and his arrival in Rome, he was aware of the danger that he faced. He may have written this exhaustive exposition on soteriology because he might, he might have thought that he wouldn't ever come back. And if he was going to be killed in Jerusalem, which was a very real possibility, and he knew that, if he was going to be killed or imprisoned where he couldn't write anymore, he wanted everything down in writing. So this is one of the reasons why he writes such an extended piece on soteriology to people who are already saved. In this case, it might have been his legacy to the church, his last will and testament, if you were to put it that way. So that's the first reason that Paul wrote. Another reason that Paul wrote Romans was undoubtedly his desire to, the, to minister to the spiritual needs of the believers in Rome, even though they were in fairly good conditions spiritually, like the church at Philippi. This wasn't a bad church. On the whole, they were a good church, but they still had spiritual needs. Any church can get better. As soon as you start thinking you've got the perfect church, we're done. Just, just go ahead and close it up, shoot me, and this is, let's move on down the road because it's just a matter of time before the Lord takes us out. No church is perfect. Uh, we all are, because churches are made up of imperfect people. Now, a church can glorify God when, the, when a maximum number of people in that church worship God and walk in fellowship individually, and then they come together and, and worship corporately. But there's no perfect church. Rome wasn't perfect. So he certainly wanted to minister to the needs of the people at Rome. Now, watch this because I didn't emphasize it like I should have the first time. Paul writes a very theological letter. Most New Testament scholars, most biblical scholars, 
would hold that the book of Romans is the most theological letter in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, what do you think it would be in the Old Testament that they think is the most theological book? Curious. Isaiah. Yeah, exactly. They were in, in New Testament, people would say that Romans is the Isaiah of the New Testament. Now, there's the only other possibility might shock you. Some people think that Leviticus is the most theological book, but Leviticus, and it does have a lot of theology, but it's Isaiah in the Old Testament that most Old Testament scholars would hold up as the most theological book, and certainly Romans in the New Testament. Ephesians has a lot of theology, of, of course, but Hebrews too. But, but Romans is very theological, but Paul doesn't just write for the sake of writing. He writes to minister to their spiritual needs. This is not just theory for Paul. He wasn't just a philosopher. I think he was a philosopher. I think he does meet the criteria for what we would consider a philosopher. He was a theologian first and foremost. He'd probably get a little offended if I gave him the title philosopher first. But that's not what this is. This is a tool to minister to people. You know, theology is a... Is, something we're supposed to learn so that we can glorify God and minister to people. It's not something that can be done ordinarily isolated from folks. Now that's good and bad because there's an old joke that goes around pastors' conferences and seminaries and that's that ministry would be really great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> well, you didn't know people talked that way, did you? <laughs> but ministry is about people. If, if all the study of the Word of God is to you is some theoretical exercise where you can recite and be proud of it, the, the definition of the doctrine of divine decrees, I can too, you know, but I'm not sure that that's going to minister to you if I do it from a distance. But, you know, even the definition of the divine decree, the decree of God is His eternal, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose, comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be, and their courses, conditions, causes, successions, and relations, and determining their certain futurition. Now, if I just did that and backed up and went right on, you might think, well, man, he can memorize it. He's, he's smart. He memorized that. But you know what? You can take that. And if, you had 10 minutes, if I had 10 minutes with you, I could sit down with you knee to knee, one on one, and I could show you how that could change your life if you understood that and you really believed it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He comes up some, with some real heavy theology. But it's like he's also sitting knee to knee with us and saying, listen, I know this sounds really heavy. But this is going to really help the way you're going to live this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow. So ministry is personal. So he had a desire to minister to the spiritual needs of the Christians in Rome, even though they were in fairly good condition already. The common problems of other early churches were dangers in Rome as well. They, didn't, they weren't realities in Rome like they were, say, in Corinth. But they included, and we'll be able to see in this epistle, they include internal conflicts, the main internal conflict that is in the church at Rome is between Jew and Gentile. We think that we have race problems now, or we thought we might have had race problems at some point in the past. Nothing compared to what they had back then between Jew and Gentile. And actually, back then, it was really the reverse. You know, We're worried about anti-Semitism today. In the church at Rome, it was more the Jews looking down their nose at the Gentile believers from a spiritual standpoint. So that was a, certainly a potential problem. External threats from false teachers was a problem, as it was anywhere Paul went. And so Paul gives attention to these. But on the whole, it was a good church, but he still wanted to minister to spiritual needs. The third reason, Paul wrote Romans as he did because he's in a transition point in his ministry. As he mentions at the end of chapter 15, his ministry in the Aegean region, the area of Turkey, Asia Minor, was solid. 
it was solid enough that he planned on leaving that and moving west. Maybe it's a good time if, if you have a map in the back of your Bible to look at a map of the Roman world. But Paul had ministered in the east for long enough. He had ministered in Turkey. He had ministered over into Greece. And now it's time for him to move west. Now he's going to go back east one time before he does it to Jerusalem. It's going to be a hard trip for him. But then after that, he planned on coming to Rome. He ends up coming to Rome, but not exactly the way that he thought that he might. So probably, Paul wrote Romans as he did to leave a full exposition of the gospel in good hands if his ministry ended prematurely in Jerusalem. Those are the three purposes that Paul had in mind when he writes this book. The great contribution of this letter to the body of the New Testament inspired revelation is its reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. It's reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. How do we become righteous? Do we work for it? Is there a set of rules that we follow? Is there an amount of money that we have to give? Or is it by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone? Paul's going to teach us that it's by faith. Justification is the term that he's going to use quite a bit when we get to the, another chapter or so down the road. And justification comes by faith, not by giving a certain amount of money. Churches have gotten in obscenely wealthy, and I do mean obscenely wealthy, over the centuries by implying to you that you can somehow buy your way into heaven or that you can buy someone out of hell or purgatory and into heaven. Well, you can't do any of it. Once you take your last breath on earth, that's it for you. Whatever, whatever decision you've made is the decision you've made. You're stuck with it. So make the decision now. Don't count on somebody buying you out of purgatory. That's what the whole Reformation was really started over. Martin Luther was a tremendous theologian, but Martin Luther loved people, just like the Apostle Paul did. And he did not like seeing the people of that part of Germany fleeced by people coming in and saying, we need your money. You give us your money, and maybe we'll get your mama out of purgatory doesn't work that way. So you can't buy it. Paul's going to tell you that it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Now what is Paul saying? What I told you a minute ago was the reason that he wrote it. But reason is different from what he actually says. And an overview of what he says is legitimate to follow. Now Romans reveals the tragic helplessness of the human race. No other book in the Bible looks so fearlessly into the abysmal degradation that has resulted from human sin. If you only read Romans 1.18 through 3.20, you'll become very depressed because it would be pessimistic. But the book doesn't end at 3.20. If you keep reading, you'll conclude from 3.21 on that, with regard to that verse, that perhaps Romans is the most optimistic book that you've ever heard. There's a bad news and there's a good news to the gospel. Bad news is, is that we are very helpless to provide our own salvation. The good news is that we can be justified by faith. So this book is all about ruin and redemption. Somebody ought to write a commentary on Romans and that, have that be the title of it. Ruin and redemption. Its first great revelation is the absolute ruin and helplessness of the human race. You probably memorized the book, For All Have Sinned and Fallen Short of the Glory of God. That's going to be a conclusion to the first major argument that Paul makes in the book. Paul divides the ruined race into two parts. The first of these is the Gentiles, who have the revelation of God in nature. 
And Paul says that all of us have enough revelation from God that we should be able to, to understand that God exists. Now here's something that's, that's very culturally relevant for today. I'm talking about Wednesday, February 25th, 2004. If this isn't culturally, culturally relevant, I don't know what is. But Paul is going to teach us that a culture that willfully suppresses the knowledge of the truth over time will ultimately and inevitably end up in sexual degeneracy, amongst many other things. A culture that willfully suppresses the knowledge of the truth over time will inevitably end up in sexual degeneracy. Should we be shocked? No, that that's happening in our country. I don't think you should be shocked. I hope you're not that shockable or that naive. Our country has turned away, not just from Jesus Christ, but from God for a significant period of time now. And the inevitable result of that is, is going to be this brand of sexual sin. So uh, does that mean that we just say, well, it's inevitable, there's nothing we can do about it? I don't think that's the case either. But don't be shocked that it's happening. Be aware maybe of why it's happened. And then so what the solution might be. And if the solution was people willfully suppressing the knowledge of the truth, then maybe we need a, a renaissance of the whole idea of Christian apologetics, which, is, which was suppressed for a period of time. And almost looked at by a certain segment of Christianity, uh, particularly the Reformed tradition, but as, as totally unnecessary. And that's not the case at all. So maybe we need a renaissance of uh, Christian apologetics. And apologetics, by the way, means a defense of the faith. It doesn't mean we're apologizing for anything. But that's something that we'll see just a, a short time from now when we get to verse 18 and following. A culture, then, that turns from God and willfully suppresses the knowledge of the truth, will inevitably move into degeneracy. In this process, it is not at all uncommon for the culture then to redefine deviancy downward. What I mean by that is that what was deviant in, in the past now becomes normal. And in order to, to really be called deviant, you've got to do something that's a whole lot worse than what that was. It's a kind of a sliding scale of, of morality. And um, I think we're there today, too. We are redefining deviancy downward. But that comes, the explanation from that comes right straight from the book of Romans. That's why I told you two, three, four weeks ago when we first started, did the introduction to this. It's a heavy, heavy theology book, but it is right on the money for helping us to understand the culture that we live in today and what we need to do about it. So hang in there with it. What was deviant behavior yesterday is considered normal then today, but just because something is considered normal by our culture does not mean that God considers it right. Secular humanism would say, whatever I decide is right is what is right. God says, I'm sorry there, sport. Whatever I decide is right is what is right. doesn't matter whatever your sliding scale is. Romans will teach us that. The other part of the Roman race, of course, is the Jews, who in addition to having the revelation of nature, also had the revelation of the Mosaic Law. And so they are every bit as guilty because they rejected that revelation. The second major 
Revelation and Romans, the second part of the message of Romans, is the magnificence of the divine plan of salvation. So Paul gets us lost. He makes us understand where we were. Of course, most of the people reading this are already saved. But he wants us to understand that the human race was lost, but then what wonderful grace came about in the divine plan of salvation. And this plan centers on a person. Uh, when we talk about the gospel in the book of Romans, we're talking about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about primarily about a person. Paul introduces Jesus Christ on the very first page of this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. And God declared to everyone that Jesus of the Gospels is his son by resurrecting him. Man's relation to the plan of salvation then is threefold. It involves justification, which is the imputation of God's righteousness to the believing sinner by faith. It also involves sanctification, the impartation of God's righteousness to the redeemed sinner. That's the growth process. And then glorification is the perfection of God's righteousness and the sanctified sinner. What did God want us to learn then from the book of Romans? First, Romans calls us to measure ourselves by divine rather than human standards. It really doesn't make a difference to me what Congress decides is normal in this sense with regard to my own personal behavior. Now, by the way, it makes a huge difference to me whether we end up legalizing homosexual marriages. You know, the big problem is the commentators that I hear are all trying to talk about this from a level divorced from any kind of divine revelation. Have you noticed that? Nobody wants to get up and say, because God said it's wrong. Because God said it was wrong. That's why I'm against it. You know, because we're immediately dismissed as shallow thinking as soon as we say that. So we've got to say, so, well, you know, the problem is that a homosexual couple can't reproduce. And, uh, and then someone call back up and says, well, neither can an older couple that gets married. So shouldn't you not grant a marriage license to them? You see, that's, you're going down a bad path. The reason that it's wrong is because God said it's wrong. Now, there are other reasons that you can line up underneath that. But believer in Jesus Christ, don't be ashamed to say that. Say, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I go by the Word of God as my standard for living, and that Word of God tells me that it's wrong. That's good enough for me. Now, you want to argue with somebody, argue with God. You may not make Fox News if you do that. You'll make the cutting room floor, but at least you'll be honest. Don't be afraid to do that. Now, there are other arguments that you can put underneath that, and I've heard them. But stay with the, the primary argument first. The reason I'm against this is because God's against it. So we're called to measure ourselves by divine rather than human standards. Second, Romans calls us to live by faith rather than by sight. Romans contrasts the futility of trying to obtain salvation by working for it with trusting God, simply believing what he has revealed to be true. Paul's going to tell us if you try to work, if you're trying to work your way to heaven, then you're working for a wage, and that's not going to make it. The more you try to work, the less it's going to work. So the message statement of the book of Romans, since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. And more about that now that we get into these verses. Now, verse 13, we took a, a bit of a look at that last time, but we, we were just about running out of time at the end of the study, so I want to swing back and say a couple more things about verse 13 because it'll, it'll help us lead into verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 13. Paul says, And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you, and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
In the introduction, we said that this book was written primarily to Gentiles, although there were Jews in the Roman church. This is one of the verses that causes people to think that. Because he says, I'm gonna, I want to get some fruit among you, look at it, as just like it did among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's assuming, we have to assume that the majority of this church is a, a Gentile church. While expressing the, the, a degree of seriousness by use of this phrase, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. Or it could be translated, if we were to do it in a little more harsh way, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. But I, I prefer New American Standards translation, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul's not being harsh here, but he's being serious. I don't want you to be unaware. That's, that tells you that this is something serious in his life. Paul took ministry very seriously. It wasn't flippant. It wasn't take-it-or-leave-it attitude. He was very serious about what he was doing. He gave his life for it. Anything that you're willing to devote your whole life to, don't you take it seriously? If you spend a lot of time going to some professional school, do you think you're just going to take liberties with your license? You know, somebody asks you to somebody asks you to write a write a prescription that you ought you know you ought not to write. You're just going to go ahead and write it and throw eight, ten, twelve years of medical school away? No. If you're an attorney and someone asks you to do something unethically, are, are you just going to go ahead and, oh, yeah, I'll be happy to throw that away? You know, it's no big deal to me. Well, that's absurd. Of course it's a big deal to you. If you devote your life for a task, you're not just going to throw it away. And, and so Paul had devoted his life to this. It's very serious. And so that's why he, he begins, oh, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand. Before we go any further with this letter, I want you to know how, how it's really important for me to come to you. So he reaffirms his concern for the Christians at Rome and his desire to minister to them on a, pers- on a personal, on a, on a face-to-face basis. He had ministered to them from a distance before, but not personal, not face-to-face. And Paul was a personal type of minister. Not only has he longed to see them, and he has prayed repeatedly that he might be permitted to do so, he's also made specific plans to come. Now, in a parenthetical statement, which is... The editors of New American Standard, I didn't check NIV, but New American Standard do put parentheses around it, as it should be, and have been prevented thus far. Paul mentions that he's been hindered from coming to the church. Paul's not specific about who or what hindered him, and since he's not specific, he apparently didn't really feel like it's that important for us to know what it was that kept him from coming. It's not necessary for us to understand what's happening in the rest of the book. Some have speculated that the person that hindered him from coming was the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't the Spirit's will for him to come. Others have speculated that it was Satan that hindered him from coming. And then still other New Testament scholars think it was circumstances that caused him not to come. But we don't know, so I don't want to come down on any one of those three. Something, though, prevented him from getting there. And since Paul, I think on the whole, was a person who did walk in fellowship with God, I'm going to lean more toward it was the Holy Spirit that hindered him from coming, even if the Holy Spirit allowed it to be another agent. We also should interpret this phrase that he wanted to obtain some fruit among, among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, uh, broadly, generally, rather than specifically as the fruit of his evangelism among them, or perhaps financial support. So Paul wasn't saying, listen, I hope to come to you so I could raise some money so I could go somewhere else. Or I hope to come to you so that I could get you saved. Because when Paul talks about the gospel, remember he's talking about Jesus Christ, and it's more than just the initial aspect of salvation. He's going to be talking about the second two phases of of salvation here as well, sanctification and glorification. So it's probably something that he means uh, in a a fairly uh, broad way. Now in verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation. Some of your Bibles might say I am a debtor. 
but the New American Standard renders it in a good way, I think. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So in these two verses, we can outline it this way. First, Paul does not consider ministry to be a burden. Extremely important for understanding what's going on with Paul's life, with Paul's ministry, and in the book of Romans. Paul does not consider ministry to be a burden. That might have been burdensome at times, but ministry itself is not a burden. The second thing we learn from these two verses is that Paul saw value in all human beings. Paul saw value in all human beings. Let's look at these two verses now. Verse 14, Paul's love for Christian fellowship and his obligation to preach the gospel to all people motivated him to visit Rome. Having received the grace of God himself, he recognized that this placed him in a position of obligation to everyone else. He owed them the opportunity to hear the gospel and to receive God's grace themselves. I have found in my personal experience that people who are in a similar situation to the Apostle Paul are oftentimes much more zealous for personal evangelism than people who say we're like me and we're saved at seven years old. When, when somebody is like Paul and can look back and see ex- how, how terribly close he came to the fires of hell, and then what had to be done by God in order to get him away from that, Sometimes there's a zealousness for Christ that is absent in, in those of us who have been saved all our lives. Now, ever since I remember, I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. never really remember not being one. Vaguely remember my conversion experience. When I went to seminary, you had to write out a page. They wanted a, par- a page, not a paragraph, a page about your salvation experience. I was in Sunday school. The lady put the flannels on the board. As far as I remember, I accepted Christ. I mean, there's, it's not a real exciting story. You know, I don't have one of the, who was it, um, Late great planet Earth, Hal, Hal Lindsey. I don't have the gutter face down in the gutter in New Orleans, you know, on a Sunday morning story, and somebody lifted me up and gave me the gospel. I mean, that's neater story than mine, but but uh, not all of us have that. But Paul was one of those ones who who was so absorbed, and we all ought to be this way, was so absorbed in his in the grace that was offered to him that he wanted to make sure everyone else knew about that. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, I don't think he would recognize the Methodist Church now. So I'm not, I'm not saying the church that Wesley founded is the same church that we have today. But, but Wesley said one time, he thinks that the reason, he wrote one time, the reason that more people don't tell others about Jesus Christ is because maybe we really don't believe in hell. Might have had a point. We don't consider what's going to happen if we keep our mouth shut. And fortunately, God's going to bring somebody else. But... So that was where I would differ a little bit from Wesley. But, but that's probably somewhat true in terms of our motivation. Now, the term that is, is rendered here under obligation is a Greek term that means one who is obligated to do something. One who is obligated to do something. I, I hesitate to use the word debtor because, well, of what I'll tell you right now. Service for Jesus Christ should not be considered repayment of a debt. you got to get that. Service for
for Jesus Christ should not be considered the repayment of a debt. We do not work to pay God back for what he has done for us. We serve him because we love him, because we recognize the price that was paid for our salvation is beyond our ability to fully comprehend and certainly beyond our ability to fully describe. But we can never make a dent in the balance if God held it against us. So it's not like we get saved, and God says, well, you were saved by grace, by grace through faith, so I sacrificed my son for you, so now the other side of the ledger for you is minus 100 quadrillion billion. And you go ahead and you owe me that now. Now, you're saved really no matter what. That's what most evangelicals roll. You're saved no matter what, but sometimes we get this idea that there's this incredible debt on this side of the ledger. Well, grace doesn't incur a debt like that. It's free. It's free. If you were to give me a new home, you just come and say, hey, here's the key to a new home. You can have it. And I say, wow, well, thank you. What do I owe you? And you say, oh, you don't owe me anything except everything for the rest of your life. Then you'd say, then I don't think that's a gift. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? God, when we trust Christ by grace through faith, we don't incur a debt per se. There's not there's not a minus thing on this side of the ledger. Actually, it's a plus sign. It's it's righteousness. It's free. We just can't even hardly imagine that kind of free, where someone would give someone no strings attached whatsoever. If someone gives something to you and there are any strings attached, it's not really a gift. Be careful. Be careful when you receive something like that. Be careful giving that way. If you're going to give somebody something, give it to them. If you're going to loan somebody something, loan it to them. But don't give it to them and then in your mind act like you're loaning it to them. In other words, there's some sort of, I did you a favor, you've got to do me a favor now. No, believer, fellow believer in Jesus Christ, when you do somebody a favor, just leave it there. Leave it there. Don't expect anything in return. Otherwise, you're not really doing somebody what the, uh, what the Bible would consider a favor. So we couldn't make a dent in that balance if we lived a million years, if there was actually a debt that was held against us. So when Paul says he's under obligation, he means that he so appreciates what was done for him that he couldn't do anything else. He doesn't mean that he regrets in any way what he's called to do. Paul's serving, if I could use this phrase, with all of his heart. It is such a part of him that if he was to be denied the opportunity to minister for Jesus Christ, that would be equivalent to denying him air to breathe. That's what I mean by being under obligation. Now this is, for Paul, this is not lock-jawed duty. You know, this is, I owe Jesus Christ, it is my duty to minister for him. No. Ministry for Paul was as was as much of his life as breathing 16 times a minute was. It's not a burden for him to breathe, is it? That might be burdensome if you have some disease process. But I'm not saying it's not a burden for you to take a breath right now. Well, for Paul, it wasn't a burden for him to minister. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Not from the Lord necessarily, but from who he was. It was such a part of him that he would be living so inconsistently with who he was. If he didn't preach the gospel, then he would consider his life to be not really worth living. That's what he means when he says, I'm under obligation. So don't misunderstand 
this concept. The terms Greek and barbarian in chapter in verse 14 rather divide Gentile <coughs> languages and culture. In Paul's day, this was a standard way of describing all races and all classes in the Gentile world when he says Greeks and barbarians. The Greek people spoke of anyone who didn't speak one of the Greek languages as being a barbarian. And this is a part of speech where the word sounds like something that they were saying. To the Greeks, the language of the Persians, for example, who this was mostly directed at, the Greeks hated Persians. Persians came and defeated the Greeks in about 400 B.C. in a particular battle, and they never, ever forgave them. That's why when Alexander the Great decided he was going to conquer the world, he didn't go west. He went right straight for the Persians. <laughs> but if you read Roman historians, they talk about how great the empire of Rome was at that time in 323 B.C. or so. If it was, Alexander would have gone over there. They were nothing at that time. He went right straight for them because there was a, there was a national hatred of the Persians. And to the Greeks, the Persian language sounded like this. Bar, 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 bar. You know, and they made fun of it. Well, that's where they got the term barbarian from. And so uh, it wasn't a kind term. It was a term of derision. So you have, in the Gentile worlds, you have the cultured Greeks and the very uncultured barbarians, at least according to a Roman viewpoint. But you also had people who were wise, and the text says to the foolish, or it could be translated to the unwise. What Paul's doing is he's getting all groups of people in here, and I think the Jews, even though they wouldn't like to be included, are included in this as well. Paul wasn't just under obligation. He didn't feel compelled just to preach and give the gospel to the upper classes of society. It had been easier for him because he definitely came from the upper classes of society. He probably would have felt more comfortable in a social situation with the upper classes of society, but he knew that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for all mankind, so why leave most of mankind in the dust and say we're not going to talk to them at all? You know, God loves the person that's in deepest, darkest Afghanistan, Cameroon, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, every bit as much as he loves people that live right here in Houston, Texas. If Paul was writing this today, he would say, I am under obligation to preach the word of God both to the Americans and to the Argentinians, you know, to the Canadians and to those in, in uh, Kyrgyzstan. That's what he's saying. I'm under obligation to all people. And also, I'm under obligation to people who think they're smart and people who don't think they're smart. Or people who think they're smart and all the people that they don't think are very smart. So the wise and the foolish distinction divides people intellectually. Most Romans, of course, would have considered themselves to be in the wise category, as most of us would, too. You know, if we were so which one do we want to be in? We would want to be in the Greek and the wise. But Paul didn't say, I don't really care. Paul wouldn't have passed anybody up because he knew that God values all people. All People are children of God in the sense of creation because we were born in, we were made in the image of God. Now, not necessarily all people, well, definitely, all people are not children of God in the sense of regeneration or salvation until you trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. But 
All people have value because we were made in the image of God. True, that image has been damaged by the fall, but the principle still remains even after the fall. In Romans, in, in Genesis 9, 6, uh, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Several years ago in a Bible study, somebody stopped me and said, That's not true. Man is not made in the image of God, not after the fall. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, I was puzzled at the time. I had no idea where that came from. But even after the fall, we are still made in the image of God. But that image has been damaged, to be sure. It hasn't been annihilated. Okay, That's why it's a crime to kill another human being. I believe if the image of God and man had been annihilated, then there would be no, there'd be no Genesis 9-6. That's why we have value. And human beings are the only created thing that is said to be in the image of God. Paul makes sure there's no doubt in his desire when he says that he's eager to proclaim the gospel to the Romans. And remember, gospel is more broad than just evangelism. It's talking about the whole of the reality of Jesus Christ. He is eager it's important for the Romans to understand this before he ever gets there. How would you feel if you needed help from someone? Let's say your muscles aren't what they used to be, and you had a sofa that you needed to carry out and, and to put in the pickup truck and carry off somewhere else. And, and uh, so you called one of your buddies and said, any chance you could swing by and help me load that sofa up into the truck and carry it down to the Goodwill? And your buddy came over and, and did that. And, and um, let's say if you could, I don't know that you can, but if you could, you could read past his words into his thoughts and discern that he hated every minute of being over there helping you do that. He did it. But he did it through gritted teeth. He did it because it was his duty, because you were his friend. But he hated every minute of it. And, and really resented you asking him to come over there and do that because he would much rather sit and watch the ball game. How would you feel if you, could, if you found that out? You know how I feel? I'd feel, well, don't bother next time. I'd, I'd just really rather you tell me I'm busy because nobody wants to be helped in that way. If I'm going to be helped, I'd rather you just say, hey, love to do it. And not because I, I would expect to have to do that other person a favor later. You did me a favor, well, I'll do you a favor. Well, that's not really the type of help that Paul's talking about giving. This may be a totally new concept for you, because maybe for your whole life it's been tit for tat. You help me, I'll help you. And maybe you've been afraid to say, you help me, and that's where, I mean, I'll help you, and that's where it stops. You don't ever have to help me again. This is just purely my benevolence to you. Maybe that's a totally new concept for you, but that's the concept the Apostle Paul had when he dealt with people. Maybe they were never to do any favor for him in return. Now, Paul does say, and he has said earlier, that he, he was going to be encouraged by them. There would be a, a, a reciprocal nature there. But that's not why he came. He didn't come because he only knew that, that he would be encouraged by them. He came and he, visited, he ministered to churches that darn sure didn't encourage him. Church of Corinth being one of them. The churches of Galatia being another. But mainly the church of Corinth is one I'm thinking of. They gave him nothing but trouble. And if Paul was only ministering to them because he thought he was going to get something out of it for himself, he'd have blown them off a long time ago. 
I'm not saying this so that we can build Paul up and put him on a plate glass window right next to Jesus Christ if we ever get plate glass windows. I'm not saying that. But Paul does say to follow my example. And the only reason he says to follow my example is because he's following Christ's example. So ultimately, this is the attitude of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for you just because he loved you. Not because he, uh, because he in, in expected to, for you to incur a debt because of that. Jesus Christ will still provide that salvation if you trust him for it, whether you ever work for him one minute in your life after that. Not even one minute. He's not going to say, listen, you didn't, you didn't fulfill your part, so I'm taking it back. Then it wouldn't be a gift. So Paul is modeling this. All of us have a ministry. Do you serve with the same heart that Paul served? Or do you minister, and do you consider ministry a duty to be discharged as quickly as possible so that you can get back to what it is you really want to be doing? That's the way to, don't, don't tell me, please. I mean, test yourself. Do you do it like Paul did, or do you do ministry to incur debt? I know it can be discouraging. Ministry can be discouraging, and oftentimes the very people that you're ministering to can be a source of that discouragement. I know that can happen. Because when you minister, you make yourself vulnerable. I'm not talking about even ministering around your church. I'm talking about getting out in the world and ministering. You can be vulnerable. And a lot of us don't like to be vulnerable because we don't want to get hurt. But who do you answer to at the end of the day? This is how you'll tell if you're really on the right track. Who do you answer to? Service for Jesus Christ should be as much of a part of us, I'm talking about our very inner being, as breathing is a part of us. And we don't consider breathing a burden. And we ought not to consider ministry a burden either. Also, service should not be restricted to a select few. God values all, and so should we. And so in verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Thus, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Heavenly Father, help us through your Holy Spirit to have the heart of one who truly appreciates our salvation, understanding that grace doesn't incur a debt, but we are under obligation because of who we are now in Jesus Christ. Help us to mature to the point where we'll realize that and that we'll minister in a way that truly will bring glory to you and not just so we can have one favor returned for another. Help us to remember that it's you that does the evaluating at the end of the day. It's you that we serve and help, we do, help us to do it with the heart that you have. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.